you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd." And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven 
for about half an hour. G'day there, my name is Coy and I'm the associate pastor here and something that you may not know about me is that my favourite movie is Jurassic Park. Now I'm not talking about the new ones with all the computers and all the CGI, I'm talking about the one back in I think 1993 where it was basically a documentary, the one with real living, <laughs> breathing dinosaurs, you know. And if you think about since then, how many movies have tried to replicate that because people draw to that kind of movie because... Things are going well, and then suddenly everything goes wrong. And people love that. People draw to that. It's awesome when you see these things go wrong. Why do you think Hollywood keeps pumping out disaster movies, right? There's just something about it. People just love to see these things go wrong. And what I feel that that happens a lot is we build up this sort of couch confidence when we watch these kind of movies. I call it couch confidence, and I'll explain what it is. It's something that I definitely have. It's kind of like when you're sitting there on the couch... You know, you're watching disaster and doom unfold on your TV and you kind of say to yourself, man, I can outrun that dinosaur. (laughs) You know, global blizzard in the movie Day After Tomorrow, you're like, mate, just put on a few extra layers, you know. (laughs) Chuck on a beanie, you're fine. Titanic sinking, cold water, mate, I shower colder than that water. Just swim a little bit, you'll be warm. You know? Meanwhile, I say that while I'm like half laying, half sitting down. You know, there's like food crumbs on my double chin and my belly, and there's like chocolate stains on my singlet, and like very comfortable on my couch. See, couch confidence tells us that surviving disasters is a walk in the park. But in reality, no right thinking human would want a global disaster to strike their life. Like full-blown, life-altering, life-threatening, life-changing disaster. We can sit there and watch a movie and picture ourselves in these kind of calamitous situations, but when disaster actually strikes our life, it's the last thing that we want to live through. Sarah Paretsky, famous for her detective fiction novels, quotes, Live disasters are wonderful attractions when you're safe on the other side of them. We take a look around us and see the real effects of disasters around us, like ravaging bushfires, spreading viruses, ongoing wars, resulting in great, immense loss. These disasters are not just stories behind a Hollywood camera. They occur throughout history, looking as though they won't stop in the future. And not too surprisingly, they're seen all throughout the Bible. They're seen in our book of Revelation. You know, in some of the more well-known depictions and illustrations, our passage today takes us to the very first disastrous images of John's vision of the future. So previously in chapters 4 and 5, the author of Revelation, John, has seen in his vision the throne of heaven, the Lord in all his fullness and glory as every living thing worships the God Almighty. He then saw a scroll that was sealed and only the slain lamb, the son of God, Jesus, is worthy to open the seals. John has witnessed the glory of an almighty and saving God, yet his vision now shifts drastically, shifts so crazily as the images move from a description of heavenly awe to earthward disaster. What John would go on to describe, as we read about in the seven seals being opened, is none other than the well-known four horsemen of the apocalypse. The harbingers of destruction often told in stories, folklore and movies to bring doom to all. The description of people in positions of power that make evil decisions. 
you know, the final boss in adventure genre video games that you have to defeat. Or to, to many parents, the description of your kids after too much sugar, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Who, as many of understand it, would be released unto the earth as they run havoc, bringing about destruction and disaster at the end of the age, when the world we see would come to an end. See, honestly, as the Sunday school rat bag I was and a rebel kid growing up, um, to know that one day I'd get to preach on the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, if I knew that, I'd be like licking my lips like, yes, it's my time to shine, right? But in reading this passage, it's a lot more than that. Seeing what surrounds it, it's so much more than these four, four blokes coming around and bringing destruction in their wake. There's so much more. It will reveal things, unveil things to us, which shouldn't bring us to fear the disasters as we read the seals are being opened, but rather bring us to awe and wonder of the one who is worthy to open the seals in the first place. So let's pray to him to reveal to us his glory through his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we head into this passage and we see some things that are uncomfortable, we see things that are so confronting, Lord, um, Lord, may you... May your truth remain in our friends' hearts, Lord. May your word convict in truth, um, in conviction, uh, in power, Lord God. Take away any words of my own and let it be only your words of truth that remain. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. See, at the end of chapter 5, we last left with Jesus, the slain lamb, being worshipped and deemed worthy to open the scroll. And so as we move on to our passage today, our passage we kick off a set of a new section which will we'll kind of run through the next 10 chapters or so. And we'll see three cycles of seven divine judgments. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. The number seven symbolizing a, a totality as we've seen in the past few weeks in Revelation. And some have read these three sets of seven as, as literal and sequential with each happening one after the other, like 21 different things. But I think because of how John has shaped his description of the three cycles, what, where each seven kind of contains the next seven, so the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets and the seven trumpets then contains the seven bowls, it better depicts a same time of period but described in different perspective and different detail. Sort of like an action replay in sport, you know, going through the same event over and over and over again, often finding different details in each replay. And if you think that already is a point of debate, there's even more conjecture on what time periods these are talking about, whether John was talking about had this happened in the past already, or was he talking about what's happening now in the present? Or is John talking about what is yet to happen in the future? So as we go through our passage, you will notice me often refer to how the vision was fulfilled in the past century context, but we'll also notice a pattern, one that repeats itself throughout history, even till today. And while we can easily get caught up in agreeing or disagreeing with the differing viewpoints, I think no matter the timeline, we'll come to see what John describes, something that speaks intently to every viewpoint and to every reader. See, as we begin reading into the three sets of divine judgments, as we see each cycle depicting God's kingdom and justice coming down here on earth as it is in heaven, know that the one who opens the scroll, opens the seals, opens the trumpets, opens the bowls, is the slain land, the one on the throne, the king of kings. As chapter 5 says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Right from the get-go, 
we see that God is in control and what we're about to read can either be the most comfortable prelude or the most dreadful. So let's read chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. See, as the first seal is open, it marks the first of four which deals with things on earth. It kicks off a set of seals of calamity, I would say. The first of these horsemen is one on the white horse, carrying a bow, carrying, uh, having a crown in his head given to him in bringing conquest. To describe conquest is to describe a, a yearning, a lust to conquer other similar things, often nations or peoples. It's about power, getting it by any means necessary by means of overpowering the weak, forms of deceit, lies, misleading, a lust that often once quenched is rarely left satisfied. See, for the first century reader, John is likely describing one of the heads of the the Roman armies, possibly Vespasian or Titus, a powerful horseman riding in with his bow, crown on his head, with a thirst to conquer. With the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD in view, he leads the army to conquer the Jewish people, to overpower them, a lust for military conquest over the whole Jewish nation. But notice, when we think back to the first century context, if we were to scan through history, all the other centuries going back to the first, 21st, 20th, 19th, 18th century, scan all the way to the first century, take snapshots of our human history, How does it look? We're left with the same repeated cycle of conquest. We couldn't count the endless amounts of nations, leaders, people who've lived their lives solely for conquering other weaker powers. The Roman Empire, Adolf Hitler, Genghis Khan, today, Disney, right? (laughs) Humanity's lust to conquer is something You know, to to deceive, to lie, mislead in order to overpower the weak is actually normal today. That's why movies like The Castle are such timeless hits, right? They're they're, they're timeless hits. They, They go against the grain of what's normal in this world. Seeing the little guy stick it to the bigger powers and tell him he's dreaming. That's what it's all like. That's against the grain of what is normal. Usually the strong overpower the weak. Yet even for the Christian... Conquest is something that we can so subtly think is okay. Christians who desire war and want their home country to be the most powerful. Churches and denominations who try to assert authority in culture, trusting in their power to make themselves great. Even our workplace where we're told to take out the little guy no matter the cost. See, everyday Christians find it easier to yell out, to yell out, make America great again, rather than live out in humility, value others above yourselves. The human lust to conquer is repeated all throughout history. And its core, at its core, it stems from our desire of power, to be the strongest, the greatest, the most powerful, the all-conquering. But as history continues to repeat itself over and over, it always comes with the same dire consequences. And the damage is twofold. The conqueror thirsts for more power and the weak become enslaved. It's an evil. And so naturally, 
we cry out. How long, strong God? How long, holy and true? How long? This is just the first of seven seals. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. War ravages almost every nation's history. As the desire for power and conquering others increases, so does the means to achieve it, even if it means taking out, taking out your own. See, this is a horseman who brings civil unrest. In such trialling times of pain and devastation, the first century Jews weren't only at war with the Romans, they heavily fought amongst one another. It's a lot of tension. So they started fighting one another, deadly fighting between Jewish camps within the besieged city of Jerusalem. And again, we look all throughout history at the worldwide disasters of civil wars, blood spilled, horror and carnage left in the wake of slaying with the great sword, communities divided, as it says, peace taken from the earth. Whether the first century, the 21st century, the final century, while this red horse depicts bloodshed, pain, warfare amongst each other, again, we cry out, O sovereign God, holy and true, how long? When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. See, with the denarius being a day's wage for the average labourer, and only receiving a quart of wheat, a day's ration of food for one person, means to work a full day only to get a, a, a ration to eat of one person's belly. That's it. To fill your own belly from a one whole days of work. This black horseman, it brings famine-like condition, shortages of food and the basic necessities of human life. When we sit and read the news around the globe, news.com, Sydney Morning Herald, all sorts, we'll easily see that this is already how it looks like today. It's fueled everywhere, droughts affecting our own farmers, severe malnourishment, not just in tribes, not just in village, villages, but in cities. And what's evident is that pain and suffering always follows famine, just as it did the first century Jews as they suffered great food shortages in, in the Roman siege or what may come to pass in the future as it becomes an extreme at the end. These are times where people all across the city, all across the dry, drought-ridden globe cry out, O Lord, holy and true, how long? And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. See, the final seal of the series of four is in a sense the one that kind of summarizes all four horsemen together. Death and Hades comes at the hand of the sword famine and diseases and wild beasts. The conquering powers lay waste to the weak, bringing about division and civil warfare. As famine and shortages arise from feuding, it all results in what? Nothing else but death. Plentiful, plentiful death. The deaths of many. This horseman brings it all together as the other seals 
would naturally result in what? Death. In the pain, the anguish, the heartache, no matter the timeline that this speaks to, whoever would be left alive would be crying out at the top of their lungs, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? See, after reading these verses, we see that these are disastrous times on earth. If we read it as something that has already happened, we may feel saddened, question why, why would such a good God have to bring such terrible judgment on these people? We may become downtrodden when we look down, when we look around and see not much has improved since the first century. Why, God, hasn't it changed? Or we may read it as the things to come and we become fearful, we become anxious maybe even angry with God. How could you let this happen, God? No matter which way we look at it, the reality is there was, is, and will be immense tribulation here on earth. Ever since the fateful disobedience of Adam and Eve in the garden, sin has entered the world and marred not just humanity, but creation too. We see sin not just extend to our moral world, but our natural world world. There's suffering, there's tribulation, there's calamities on earth. Paradise lost due to our shortcomings. As Romans 8 says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's a consequence to our disobedience. Evil exists, but not as the opposing thing in and of itself to God. But as theologian Augustine considered, it's a lacking. Sin says, We have missed the mark. Only our God is perfect and holy, the author of good. He created all things perfect and good, including his prized possession, us. Yet due to our disobedience, resulting in our lacking in holiness, resulting in evil, God who is holy, perfect and true, and just, demands justice, demands judgment, consequences for the evil, consequences for the nature of our sin. See, as we read these divine judgments handed out through the seals, naturally we're probably all a bit squirming you know, in our comfortable seats, but it's starting to feel a little uncomfortable as it describes God in quite a wrathful way. But these judgments aren't so much a God who is, is vengeful, and seeks pain and anguish anguish on those he created. But as Osborne puts it, God is not so much pouring down judgment on the earth dwellers as allowing their depravity to come full circle. Conquest, warfare, famine, death, these are all attributes and consequences of humanity's sin. Leaders and nations conquer because they want to be the greatest. They want to be God. There is war, global civil, because pride and power is more important than peace. Shortages of food, famines, because the curse of sin is upon creation and our greed keeps the rich richer and cheating rules the trade world. There is death as a life eternal in paradise with our creator was cut short as we decided that we don't need the creator. These four seals opened as described to us by John. They're bleak. That's the reality. They're bleak. A real 
scary and vivid description of the tribulations of life on earth, dwelling in the past, present, or future. And so John sees the next fifth seal being opened, one that is different to what we've seen so far. See, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. See, in any age, there are multitudes of Christian martyrs dying at the hands of evil, dying for the cause of Christ. And John pictures, pictures us there yelling out in death, a sort of a seal of cries from the faithful. When, Lord, will you bring vindication on the evil of this world? Here are the martyrs who have been slain for Christ's sake, crying out for justice. But they're not doing so out of selfish desires. But I think because they desire justice from God's throne. Poitras puts it, they desire to see God's justice fully manifested and evil eliminated. The inhabitants of the earth form a group opposing God. Humanity consists of two groups, the people of God, whose citizenship is in heaven, and in opposition to them, the rebellious earth dwellers. See, whether it be the first century Christians and converts slain at the hands of the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders of the Jewish nation, or the many Christians that are still dying today around the countries that we may not know for the sake of the gospel, or future martyrs who will die in times of great tribulation, they remain faithful to the cause of Christ throughout. And so their souls cry out for this evil to be quashed the Lord in all his justice and glory may reign. The slain cry out for justice upon these persecutors. Here are the real cries of the faithful who have given their life in the name of Jesus. They cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? See, what I love about this seal is that while the picture is kind of specifically martyrs. I think it also applies to faithful believers. You know, as Proverbs tells us, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terrible to evildoers. As a Christian, when we look around us amidst the pain, suffering, evil of this earthly living, we have a hope, our hope in Jesus. Yet as we live through our days here, aren't there just moments where you cry out in your heart, when Will you return, Jesus? I see your servants horrifically suffering and persecuted. Come, Lord Jesus. How could people do such heinous and evil acts? Come, Lord Jesus. I see war, division, death all around me. Come, Lord Jesus. When we're looking around at the world, we can't be satisfied with what we see. As citizens of heaven, we should yearn for our King Jesus to come in justice, glory, and vindication as injustice, corruption, and evil is eliminated. Not for our own selfish ambitions, not for our spite or vengeful attitudes, but out of our deepest desires to see God's just glory made known to every soul that has ever lived. In this seal, 
these faithful believers who died by the hands of Christ's opposers cry out for the day these opposers come face to face with the righteous creator God. And as John sees the next seal be opened, we'll see that that time will come. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. John sees the sixth seal opened, and it brings forth the last days, or the very end, a seal of conclusion, that the catastrophic events described such unimaginable earthquakes, a darkened sun, a moon of blood, are both symbolic and literal in describing the climax of all the cycles of all judgment. While the first century viewpoint would kind of associate this this sixth seal with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that viewpoint was still a test to the Bible telling us that there will indeed be a day where Christ will return again. Jesus himself shared to his disciples words that echo this very passage in Revelation. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The cries from martyrs for God to judge and avenge their blood on those who dwell upon the earth doesn't go up in vain. The evil we see on the earth surrounding us, the all-conquering powers, the bloodthirsty warmongers, the beneficiaries of famine, the directors of death, the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the generals, and the rich, and the strong, and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand before it? The the destructive consequences of sin will one day make its final appearance as it's dealt with the divine wrath of God. The fate of those who are not prepared to meet the Lord is described here in shuddering detail. Poithra says, the fact that there are seven kinds of people listed here is surely intended to remind us that God's judgment upon humanity is complete and total. So in other words, no one will escape. Sinners will come to realize the full effects of their depravity. The all-conquering kings who see themselves as gods will see that their, their thrones are fleeting. The all-powerful moguls who have people at their feet will no longer have a leg to stand on. The always hoarding rich who have everything they've ever wanted will get something they've never wanted. The lust-filled slaves who are satisfied with their addictions will be slaves to anguish. The free, the free living nomad who won't be tied down will have no place left to go. The flaky believing Christian who sees no rush 
to commit will see that there's no time left. The satisfied Australian who sees no need to surrender will come face to face with their creator. It says, everyone who is a sinner will one day see what sin has produced all this time. Death, doom, destruction. All the cherished sins that they've rationalised in their lives will rear its ugly head and reveal their need to be judged by the wrath of the Lamb. And they'll be left with the question, who can stand? No one. Because that's all of us. We have all missed the mark. We are all lacking. We are sinners. Psalm 130 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If this holy, perfect, and good God should mark iniquities, in other words, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Yet in the same psalm, it says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. But with this holy, perfect, good God, there is forgiveness. God himself will redeem Israel his people, from all their sins. Who can stand in the midst of this judgment from the Lord? Nobody but Jesus, who stands on our behalf. See, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. We may have heard that before. Jesus took on the shame, the guilt, the punishment of our sin, the judgment, the Son of God, holy and without blemish in His grace and in His mercy, took on our lacking and our deserved judgment of death on the cross so that whoever should believe in Him as Lord and Saviour of their life may never fear the final judgment to come. The Lamb of God was slain for our sins, removing the very record of them. Know that as we come to Jesus in repentance, there is forgiveness. Know that as we call him out, our Savior, and surrender our life to him, we may stand in his presence redeemed. Don't wait until the end finally comes to realize the full effects of your sin. Don't wait till you're in a better space in your life or once you've finished with your fun, or once you're on your deathbed. See sin for what it really is and what it actually produces. Stop rationalizing the sins that you cherish behind closed doors, behind people's backs, behind excuses, and bring it to the feet of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who forgives and the Lamb who saves. See, before the last seal is opened, what happens is one of the most beautiful scenes in all Revelation. 
John in his vision sees an interlude, an interlude that outshines, I think, the very main narrative that we've been reading, a flashback to just before the seals were opened. And John witnesses four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel descending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. That before the great tribulation sent upon the earth, that God would seal his servants, that he would protect them even before the disastrous seals be unleashed, tells us of an almighty God who is sovereign and an almighty God who is gracious. While 144,000 is often up for debate, depending on what view you may land on, The relevance in all of them is that God in his sovereign power protects the saints he calls his own. Whether it be the first century Jews who would see Jerusalem's destruction at the hands of the Romans, God still protected the faithful Jewish and believers in Christ who actually escaped to safety prior to the siege. And then what would happen was you'd see the gospel movement all across the world, even up to until now whether it be the future final days as a godly remnant of 144,000 Jewish people will be sealed in protection. God still in his sovereignty seals and protects and preserves them as he brings Israel to repentance in the final days. Or whether it be the present now, if you view it now, 144,000, a number symbolic of the fullness and totality of the people of God, the church, us, where nobody is missing, nobody lost in the shuffle, but each believer sealed, numbered by God, known by God. As Matthew 10 says, no one slips in his care. This tells us of a sovereign God who's in control of all things and those who he has called his own, he protects. They are sealed. They are sealed in Christ. Now, this is not protection from earthly sufferings and tribulations while we live waiting for Jesus' return. This isn't a promise of a life without physical turmoil and hardship for one preserved by God, not at all. Look at the lives of the martyrs who suffered greatly for the cause of Christ and died. But this is a different seal. This is an everlasting seal, a protection of eternity, that through Christ we are sealed in eternity by our living God that one day we will not just see what John is about to describe, but we will get to live it. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with loud voices, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. See, what I've come to realise is this is a beautiful passage of 
contrasts. While the earth receives judgment through conquest, in heaven sits the one who has already conquered, Jesus. While the earth ravages itself in warfare, feuding, division, in eternity stands multitudes from every language, every nation, all tribes, all nations, united as they worship Jesus. While the earth is plagued with droughts, famines, shortages of food, in eternity, God's people hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, Jesus. As the earth mourns and anguishes in the finality of death, in reality, there is life, life eternal, only found in Jesus See, behind the destruction, the doom, the gloom that we see as we look around the world today, our God remains in control. Even when it looks like the world is winning, that evil has the upper edge, know that God has already won. Jesus, the lamb who was slain, sits at the throne in victory. He has defeated sin and God has already sealed those who put their trust in the Saviour, Jesus. That those sealed by the living God are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, robes washed by the blood of Jesus, washed clean that they may stand in the presence of a holy God, not lacking, but holy and pure. Through Jesus, our sovereign God secures his people for eternity even as we face the consequences of our evil in this world. And while many have tried to use the 144,000 to signify a limit, a kind of reached number, like once it's full, that's it, remember that John saw a great multitude that no one could number. Every nation, every tribe, every people and language standing before the throne, worshipping the Saviour who redeemed them. So this can be you. God's grace is massive and flows out for multitudes. The question, who can stand at the end of time, is for all of us. And the answer is, Jesus can. He's the everlasting answer. So put your hope in the Lamb. Put your trust in in him, the lamb who opened the seals, yet protects his sealed for eternity. As it says, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Let's pray. Father God, as we look around and we see the heartache, the pain, the anguish of an earth that is met with disaster, What a joy it is when we see in your word the contrast that you have sealed your own, that you, Lord, are in control of it all. And you, Lord, as you ask, who can stand? You sent your son to stand in our place that he may take on the judgment that we deserve. And he took it so that we can be in paradise with you. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus, and the glory and grace that he's shown in giving up his life for us. And while we wait here and we cry out, when will you return?
May we wait in joy. May we wait in peace. May we wait in certainty and know that faith in Jesus Christ is unassailable. Not because of the strengths of our own faith, but because you, God, are the one who seals your people. And we thank you, Lord, and pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.